All right, well, hello, good morning. My name's Kyle, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if it is your first Sunday, we just want to personally uh, welcome you. Um, it's a great week to be with us um, as we enter into this Advent season, and, and this whole time is just going to be focused on um, who exactly Jesus Christ is and why we're here this morning worshiping a God who we believe came, um, who is, and who will come again. And so this morning, as we begin this season, all focused on the coming of the Lord, um, we read in the Bible these arrival moments, and they're often referred to as um, the day of the Lord, and, and there's actually many of them through Scripture. So, so as you read Scripture, what you come to find is that the day of the Lord is a, a theme that illustrates moments in history where God divinely acts in just massive ways that affect not only his people, but the world around them. And in each of these occurrences of one of these days, it, it ultimately acts as a type or a picture of the capital D day of the Lord, this final day of the Lord where all these previous days will just pale in comparison, where the fullness of the fulfillment of all that God has prophesied and promised will finally come to its full fruition. So the day of the Lord is, is just one of many themes that we find in Scripture, and today uh, I want to point your attention to just a few of those themes that we'll find all over the Bible, because each one of them teaches us something about who our God is, but also about what it means to be one of His people. And so the day of the Lord is just one of those themes, but another theme that we find in Scripture are areas called high places or mountains. And so whenever you read, when you're reading scripture and you hear of a high place or a mountain, what I want to happen in your mind is this antenna to go up because the text just took you to a place of worship. Like you just got transported to a place where you have a chance to encounter God. So in ancient days, um, these, these mountains, these high places were seen as places where the heavenly and the earthly were just so close maybe even overlapping. And so mountains are where temples were built, they're where altars were constructed, it's where people communed with their gods. They were holy places. And reading your Bible, this really seems to be the case. High places are always where heaven and earth just almost seem to touch. So for instance, a close reading of Genesis 1 and 2 reveals that Eden was actually a mountain garden where God and man were together. It was on a mountain that God made his covenant with Israel. It was on a mountain that God gave the people the law. It was on a mountain that God commanded his people to build their capital and his temple in Onikos. So what we find is that mountains in high places are used physically, but also as literary devices to illustrate the union of the divine and the physical. And our text this morning is a great example and expression of that theme. So this morning, I want to start off this Advent season looking at a picture of what it's like when God comes to earth and invites us to be with him in one of these high places. So, so look with me again at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I think it's important that we lock this in. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. 
and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So Isaiah has this vision of a future in which the mountain dwelling place of God is esteemed as the highest of all mountains. It's a place where not only all nations come to learn from and worship God, but it's also the place where people from all nations can come to be with him. And Isaiah sees a world in which God's word stretches beyond the borders of this city and his reign is over all nations where God is judge and because of that there's no more war and the weapons of this world are so unnecessary that they're transformed into tools to be used for this new and even greater garden mountain or mountain garden because there's this peace that will last forever and this is the vision Isaiah has and what's more he says in verse 2 that it will come to pass there's no doubt this is the future And so he concludes this picture by inviting his listeners to walk in the light of this future day of the Lord. He calls for them to live like they're there now. So first, can we all just imagine seeing this vision? Can we imagine living in a world that could be summarized by the word peace? It sounds perfect, and I think it is. But to understand just how perfect this must have sounded or the hope that it's meant to be, we have to understand who Isaiah was writing to and the circumstances of the world he was in. Because it's one thing to have a general understanding of those many themes we find in Scripture, but I think of equal importance is our grasp of the context to anything we read. And I think that makes sense, right? None of us are content to enter into a movie 45 minutes in. None of us um, start with the last chapter of any story. So before we really dive into the text we just read, let's spend some few moments um, just to grasp, grasp the world of the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in this book for the next couple of weeks, so I think this will be helpful for us. All right, so Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet who lives in the nation of Judah towards the end of their history as an independent nation. In the history of God's people, this book is long since God's brought his people out of Egypt Uh, into the promised land and establish them in uh, the land there and establish them as a nation. It's generations past the time that God allowed his people um, to have their first king. Uh, Long since he brought the 12 tribes together under David, it's even a long time since God's people broke into two separate nations with 10 of those tribes making up northern Israel, two of those tribes making up southern Judah. So instead, Isaiah's writing in a time when northern Israel's rebellion has gotten so bad, it's idolatry, it has led them so far from God that he used the nation of Assyria as his sword of judgment, such to make Israel captives to Assyria. And now Isaiah's living in a time when the same threat is at Judah's borders. Isaiah lived through four kings of Judah during um, times of prosperity and times of hardship. Some kings were good kings, some kings were bad, but in all cases, the people continually turned from God and worshiped others and lived life by their own set of rules. And so the book of Isaiah serves as a record of the indictments that God makes against Judah for the way that they were living, and it foretells an imminent future judgment for their rebellion, injustice, and idolatry. But with that judgment also comes these glimpses of hope 
reminding the people of the promises that God's made to them and to this continual call back to him. And so as we read Isaiah, you learn that God's judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is on its way. But for those who trust God and who rely on him, that day is not just a day of judgment, but also of salvation and restoration. It's a day of judgment, but it leads to future days of peace. And so the theme of the book of Isaiah, it's really this question. When faced with the reality of the world around you, will you put your faith in God or in man? And to use one of our themes, the question is, who or what do you put in the highest places? Who or what do you put in the highest places? So this morning, right now, as I continue to preach and your minds wander off, it it won't offend me if it's to that question. All right, because this is the question this morning. What do you put in holy places? What do you worship? Is it your own desire for comfort? Is it your partner or your children? Is it your job or your reputation? What do you put above all else? And when the realities of this world are at the borders of your life, where do you turn? Is it to any nation other than God's, which isn't this one, by the way? Is it your politics or politicians? Is it your own wealth, your own wisdom? What do you put your trust in when things are good? Where do you turn when things go south? This week I tried to come up with the perfect story to illustrate this question and the consequences of whatever decision we make when we decide where we'll turn and the best one I got isn't that great, so bear with me. <laughs> so when I was in high school, I worked for a landscaper, uh, and I worked in their home and garden center, and one day, I don't even remember what happened, but I jammed my toe really badly, and it messed up my toenail. All right, this is where we're going. Gross. <laughs> so in all my teenage wisdom, I decided not to go to a doctor but to do some home surgery. Has anyone here ever done a home surgery? <laughs> Long story short, after about a week or two, the pain was enough, and I'm sure it was infected, that I ended up at the doctor's in far worse a condition than I should have been, far later than I should have gone. And the doctor did his thing, and let's just say it eventually grew back. I'm fine, thanks for asking, I don't need home meals. <laughs> but here's my point of telling you this embarrassing story. There are times in life when we know where we should go and where we should look for guidance or help, yet for some reason we still choose to reject it and we put something else in its place. In my case, I really thought that I could perform a minor surgery on myself. I thought that the medical knowledge and skills of a 16-year-old me compared and competed with an actual doctor's, but I was wrong. But how many of us have stories like that? Maybe the stakes were lower, maybe they were higher. The point is, there are times in life when we all know the truth, but choose a lie instead. There are times when we think we can do it, that we think we can figure it out, despite knowing where the answers lie, we seek them on our own elsewhere. But the lesson and the truth is that what we really need in situations like mine is a good physician. 
and in life there are so many times we know that that physician is Christ, yet we choose to turn somewhere else or rely on someone else. And we esteem something else as if it's better than or more powerful than he is, or we think that we have more control over a situation than we, do, than we really do. And in all of these cases, it keeps us from the reality that is so much more peaceful than the one that we chose instead. So listen, when we esteem the wrong things and we try to put them in high places, they often come tumbling down on us. If it's not relying on yourself in some dumb example, it it may be that we've put all of our hope in our country now or in our politics now to fix the world, but they won't. And if you've placed your family in the high places to be the thing that always makes you happy, inevitably they're going to meet, they're going to fail to meet your expectations and it will make you resentful and them bitter. And if you think that the money that you've saved will make you safe, when it all dries up, you'll be left with the same fear that never went away despite the number on that account. There are so many things that we put in high places that we put on top of that mountain, but the only things that should be there are God. Everything else is an idol, and that idolatry is the very thing that's keeping us from experiencing the peace that Isaiah envisioned. Who or what have we put in the highest places? Chapter two of Isaiah begins with this beautiful glimpse of a future where God is in the right place and his people are there with him and it's nothing but peace. But the remainder of the chapter explains what exactly it is that was keeping this vision from being the reality for his people then. So look with me at what Isaiah says next in verses six through eight. He says, you've rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands, to what their own fingers have made. So Isaiah tells the people that they've lost sight of their God, and they've replaced him with money, with military power, with other idols, with their own self-reliance. He tells them that they've put their faith in political alliances, they've confused their physical nation with the ultimate reality of being a part of God's, and by verse 17, Isaiah warns them that the consequences of their sin will be that the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And it's just like that gross toe story that you'll all look at me differently for. (laughs) Their pride and misplaced reliance led to their downfall. And so I don't know if you've looked around lately or watched the news, but this all sounds too familiar. So many of us fall into these same lies and temptations and we confuse uh, different things as God's things. And and we, we look at where we live, and we, we think that it has more in common with Zion than Babylon, but it's actually quite the opposite. And, and so many times we rely on our money to be the thing that solves our problems, or we think that more of it will do so. 
And how many of us, maybe over the holidays recently, fought, argued, or divided over opposing opinions with others who we considered family, friends, or neighbors, or even worse, brothers and sisters in Christ? But whatever perspective on this world we hold, one thing that's universally agreed upon is it's certainly not what we wished it to be. Peace is not a word that I would use to describe our present. And if you're anything like me, it's so easy to let the weight of all of that just pull you down. So if you're with me this morning on that, and you feel like everything we see and hear the conversations around us, our own experience just makes us feel done with it all. Listen, if that's you this morning, I want to give you a harsh word, but I promise I'll quickly follow it up with some encouragement. And it's my hope that that's what we'll all walk away with this morning. It is hope. So here's this harsh word first from Isaiah, just real quick, like taking off a band-aid. It's verse 22. Stop regarding man whose nostrils are full of breath, for of what account is he? Here's how Isaiah concludes the chapter. Just plain and simply, he tells us to stop, to stop relying on ourselves, to stop thinking that this leader or that leader is the answer, to stop thinking money will save you or power or anything else. Just stop. It's clearly not working. The world's not getting better. You're not any happier than you were the day before. Your ways fail. The things that we put in high places fall. And it's because of that, it's because of our sin that the day of the Lord is coming for you. But I promise good news, and here it is. The day of the Lord is coming for you. And in fact, it, it has. So remember how God likes mountains. Something interesting about the mountains of the Bible that I forgot to tell you earlier on purpose is that the mountain of the house of the Lord, or the temple mount, referred to in Isaiah chapter 2, is actually the same mountain where God tested Abraham and asked him to sacrifice his son before ultimately providing a substitution to take his place. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 22. So Jerusalem, Zion, is home to the same mountain, Mount Moriah, in which Genesis 22 takes place. And it's here that God's first called the God who provides. And Jesus, in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, is seen coming to Jerusalem where he prepares to become the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice for us, where God again provides. And in that chapter, he tells the people this, Uh, Chapter 12, verse 31 through 36. Listen closely. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus answered them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Church, did you hear it? Jesus came to Jerusalem 
the same city, the location of the same mountain to pronounce judgment and establish his kingdom, the day of the Lord. And on that day and on another mountain, Jesus provided himself as a substitutionary sacrifice so that all people could draw near to him. And in this, Jesus gives the same invitation that Isaiah gave to the people of his day. Walk in the light of the Lord. Stop stop regarding men. Stop relying on those other things. Place your faith and your hope in the Lord who provides. Learn from him and walk the path that he places before you. It leads to peace. So listen, the final day of the Lord, it's still yet to come. But God doesn't tell us about that day so that we'd simply wait around for it. He calls us to live in the light of it. He tells us to live in that world now. And in fact, he's always, that's always been his call for his people that despite the corruption and idolatry of this world, we would live contrary to it all and be the example of how different the world can be if we walked in the light of the Lord. And despite the evil realities of this world, we can live that way with confidence and perseverance because we know that this vision will come to pass. It's not a pipe dream or a wish. It's the future. And we can do our part to make it a reality for those around us now if we cast down whatever misplaced things we've put in the highest places, if we put down our weapons and instead look to God who's above all else and come to him and learn from him and live like him now. This world is a garden we're called to cultivate. The harvest is plenty but the laborers are few. But what does this look like? I think a perfect passage for for that is found in Philippians chapter two. So many of this morning's themes are picked up there as this practical picture of what it means to live out the peace found in Isaiah chapter two. And so here's what it says beginning in verse three. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Advent, it's this time when we celebrate the Lord Jesus who came and who died 
and who rose from the dead and who ascended to the highest of all places and who promises to come again to make Isaiah's prophecy complete. And in the meantime, he calls us to live in the light of that truth now, to be children of the light and people of peace. And this morning, I encourage you to walk in the light of the Lord now because it leads to a future of peace later. Let's make Advent more than a season. Let's make it a way of life. Let's make it a life in which we remember that Jesus came and is and is coming again. And to do that, let's be a people of peace who do all things without grumbling, who put others before ourselves, who serve like Christ served and loved like Christ loved. Let's do that together and let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that from Genesis to Revelation, Lord, you have one story. That despite um, our shortcomings and our failures and our idolatry, Lord, which deserve judgment, you chose to take that upon yourself to be the ultimate substitution so that we could come to you, that we could draw near to you because you've made peace with God and men. Lord, I pray that we would be children of the light, that we would be sons of the promise, that we would walk the path you set before us, knowing the future that's there, Lord, and that that, that path of peace leads us there. Lord, I pray that during this season of Advent, our hearts and our minds would just continually turn to you, that we'd invite our neighbors to walk that path with us, that we'd be models of that path at work, in our homes, wherever we are, Lord, and that in that, this, this future would be a future that more people would enter into, that the day of the Lord would be something not to be feared, but to be celebrated, because for those who trust in you, Lord, it's nothing but peace. Lord, all these things in your name, amen.